0: Hello, and welcome back to Opposition Cast with me, Nigel Fletcher. Well, it's been a, a while, hasn't it? Uh, apologies to those of you who've uh, been missing us too much during our extended break. Uh, and in particular to one distinguished listener uh, from the world of politics who has themselves had quite a busy few months, uh, but still found the time to let me know that they were waiting impatiently for the next episode of the podcast. Uh, So it's good to know that we're appreciated, uh, particularly uh, in Westminster, and I hope that they will find the time to listen to this triumphant return um, before the political world goes into another frenzy uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, But with uh, no further ado, uh, in today's episode, I'm very pleased to be able to share with you something rather special from an event that we held earlier in the summer. Uh, On the 6th of July, we held our first Opposition Studies Conference at King's College London, uh, where I also teach, uh, and we held that in association with the Centre for British Politics and Government. And uh, it was a really great event, and we had some excellent speakers and participants, both in person and, of course, uh, in the post-COVID era, Uh, online as well. Um, But we thought it would be a shame not to bring some of the highlights of that event to an even wider audience. So for today's episode of the podcast, uh, I'm going to do just that. And in the first session of the conference, we looked at opposition in Parliament in uh, both the Commons and with a wider discussion on the House of Lords. And we were joined Uh, for that discussion um, and for the presentations by um, two previous guests on the podcast, uh, Professor Lord Norton of Louth, Philip Norton, and Baroness Royal of Blaisden. And as well as being a former Labour leader of the opposition in the Lords and now being principal of Somerville College, Oxford, uh, Jan Royal is also our chair at the Centre for Opposition Studies. So it was a, a real honour to have her officially open our first research conference. And so to kick off this episode. Here is her opening address.
1: So thank you very much, Nigel, uh, because as Chair of the Centre for Opposition Studies, it is a great pleasure to formally welcome you to this seminar today, this first conference today, and as Nigel said, to thank King's College. London Centre for British Politics and Government for hosting us today. I have to say that I've got kind of building envy. This is a splendid, splendid um, place to meet, isn't it? Lucky King's College. So the uh, Centre for Opposition Studies was established in 2010 by Nigel and his colleague, Professor Mohammed Abdelhaq, who you'll be hearing from a little later today. And the idea behind it was very simple to promote the study of political opposition as a distinct area of academic interest and address what they saw, what we saw as an imbalance in the study of politics, which is heavily balanced towards the study of power and those in government. So the central mission of the uh, centre is to try to redress the balance to some extent. I mean, I personally think that Good opposition is fundamental to good government. As someone who has served in government and then in opposition, I know how challenging it can be to move from one to the other. In government, ministers get used to the levers of power. And also, ministers all have a fundamental belief, and I believe this to be true of all parties, that. You are you, you want to be in politics, you want to be in in power to bring about change, and when you you're suddenly ejected and you're no longer in power, you feel that your your mission can no longer be accomplished, and naturally, they find it also disorientating and dispiriting when they suddenly find themselves out of office. you know they no longer have a car either, so um and they have to adapt to the task of opposition with almost no support or resources to help them. I remember going into opposition in 2010, and suddenly you've got an office of sort of three or four people, and you you don't know quite what to do. You You don't have the skills, or the people who are working with you don't have the skills to do what is necessary to be a good opposition. We all accept that the quality of government matters and there are very many well-established centres and independent research institutes devoted to studying the way in which government works for very good reason. But the quality of opposition also matters, at least as much and as I suggested perhaps even more. The opposition in a democratic system, democratic political system, They're the people who keep government on their toes. They're the people who scrutinize legislation properly. They're the people who try to expose the errors and the failings of the government, to hold the government to account. But they're also usually aiming to be seen as an alternative government of the country. And that of course is also important. And sometimes it takes a hell of a long time for people to trust opposition and to believe that they Do have the capacity to uh, be a government. If opposition is done badly, not only do governments failings go unchallenged, but voters can feel that they haven't got a meaningful alternative. I feel that that's what's happened in our country for too long. And without that alternative, the basic Choice of free people in a democracy to throw out those in power is seriously constrained. And I think that's bad for government and it's bad for democracy. And I think that as democracies develop around the world, we have to give more thought to helping people understand the importance of opposition as well as government. Because I feel that too often, governments get to power in a democracy, and without a strong opposition, too quickly they become an autocracy. So opposition matters, and that's why it's important that we study it. We only have a very small team at the Centre for Opposition Studies, but the work that they do is really important, and it really is about quality, not quantity. In recent years, I'm delighted that the centre has partnered with the University of Bolton, which is a very fine university, and it it works to develop postgraduate degree courses, which will give equal weight to the study of political opposition as to the study of government. And that, I think, is unique in universities in our country. And I'm very pleased to announce today that the first of those bespoke courses the MA in Government, Opposition and Parliamentary Studies is being launched this year and is open for application by students from today. So I think we should all get on the Twitter and, and make sure we get lots of brilliant applicants. It's a very exciting development. And I congratulate Mohammed, N- Nigel and the whole team at Bolton for the work that's gone into developing that master's uh, degree programme, which is indeed unique. Alongside the significant milestone in promoting the teaching of opposition, today's first opposition studies conference is a major step forward in promoting the study of the subject by academic researchers. And the program today includes many extraordinary speakers from early career researchers to highly distinguished professors, all of them united by the fact that their research has given and continues to give opposition the actual focus and the attention that it deserves. And by attending this conference, whether in person or online, you have demonstrated that you too think that this subject matters. So on behalf of the Center for Opposition Studies, thank you so much for being here today, for supporting this event, but also for supporting the mission, which we believe is critical to good government and good governance in this country and throughout the world. So with that I declare the conference. Thank you very
0: much. Jan Royal there, officially opening the Opposition Studies Conference. Uh, of course at that moment we released white doves and uh, unleashed fireworks outside and um, there was trumpets sounding. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment. Um, but uh, seriously she um, I think outlined very well the reasons why studying opposition is so important and the reason that um, we're doing this podcast and why you're listening to it. Um, And it was good also to bring to a wider audience, which we've also done now to you, dear listener, uh, some of the other work that we have done and are doing uh, as the Centre for Opposition Studies, including that new um, master's programme with the University of Bolton, which we're very excited about. Uh, You can find more details of that um, on the Centre for Opposition Studies pages of the University of Bolton website. Uh, You can go on there and find details of that and how to register um, interest in that. Um, So that's a very exciting development, which we were very pleased to um, be able to announce at the conference. Um, And then we moved on to the first uh, keynote speaker, uh, which, as I said earlier, was Professor Lord Norton of Louth. uh, Again, a friend of the podcast and of the centre. Um, and some years ago he wrote a paper, um, a journal article, called Making Sense of Opposition, and uh, we thought that that would be a very good place to start our first conference uh, on opposition to define what it is that we're actually talking about and some of the issues around that. Uh, If you haven't listened to um, Philip's contribution to the podcast uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was now, gosh, we are getting old, aren't we? Um, Towards the beginning of the run of these podcasts, we interviewed um, Philip, Uh, and he went over some of these themes. Um, So do listen to that. But uh, we thought it would be worthwhile asking Philip to give a keynote address, uh, setting out some of the issues around defining opposition and the many different uh, forms that it takes. So uh, over to uh, you, Philip.
2: Right, thank you very much indeed, Nigel, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation, and I'm uh, delighted to be here uh, today. And as Nigel was indicating, I thought it may be useful to... Offer this talk as a start to trying to understand what we mean by opposition. We tend to take it as as um given. So in good Professor Jode mode, um it all depends what we mean by opposition. Now, if we take a different the dictionary definition, which is the act of opposing or the state of being opposed, it doesn't really take us much further forward. What, it, what is it that is being stood in opposition to? So my focus is opposition to government. So standing in counterpoint to the government and standing in opposition to government within parliament. So my focus is parliamentary opposition. But that itself encompasses several forms. So my talk this morning is going to be a talk of two halves, each of which is, again, comprised a list, which quite consistently in each case is a list of six. But opposition can take different forms. So I just want to adumbrate six forms of opposition. You can think of them spatially, or at least the first four, within the context of the physical layout of the chamber. The last two, um, for instance, I'll come on to, you can't. So, different types of opposition. First of all, there's the opposition with a small o. So by that, I mean all the parties sat on the benches facing the government. So that combination of parties that stand in opposition to the government. So I say opposition with a small o, so all the benches facing government. The second category is opposition with a capital O, so that just one, the second largest party in the House, uh, with a leader, typically, desig- normally designated by the Speaker as the person leading the party that could form the government in the event of the existing government uh, ceasing to be able to perform its duties. And that concept of the official opposition is something I shall come on to as, as core to particularly understanding the Westminster system of government. But then the third uh, uh, category um, is intra party opposition. So it's not necessarily members sat facing the government, it's some of the members sat on the government benches. So you can have intra party opposition. Uh, one could argue today is a good example of seeing an element uh, of that. So there are members who may disagree with their own side, normally loyal. And so, particularly in the context of the United Kingdom, Recent decades have seen an increase in the willingness of government supporters to actually stand in opposition to their own side. So, intra party opposition, increasingly significant. And um, the next category is inter party opposition. So, you can get that where, in conditions of coalition or PACs, where more than one party forms the government and one of those parties then disagrees with the principal party. So we saw that um, during the period of coalition uh, 2010-2015, so occasionally conflict between the uh, parties comprising it, or when there's a a pact uh, as 2017-2019 with the Conservative Party and the the DUP. So those are the first four, and I say you can think of it spatially and where they sit uh, in the House of Commons. Now the fifth category isn't actually in the house or not that that chamber, and that of course is intercameral opposition. So the government might face opposition in a bicameral system from the other chamber. So external to the principal chamber, but there is opposition. So the government stands in general opposition to the second chamber. And the final form of opposition, uh, seemingly contradictory in a way, is what I shall call parliamentary anti-parliamentary opposition. So as all the others operate within the existing framework, you can have parties that stand for election, but are not only opposed to government, but the very system of government itself. So an obvious context in the United Kingdom, Sinn Féin, which does seek election, stands in opposition to government, but is in opposition to the whole system. In the European context, of course, there was UKIP, which did seek election, was opposed to the whole system, but they did take up their seats to provide opposition within the uh, parliament. So six different types of opposition. So that's just for clarity. And the obvious point to make as well is, of course, they're not mutually exclusive. So you have a combination of opposition, so you can have the government facing the opposition or opposition parties while having to contend with dissent on its own benches or opposition from some of its own members or indeed opposition from another party to the pact or coalition. So the prime example there would be the Theresa May government of 2017 to 2019, where she faced myriad forms of opposition. To some extent, the Cameron government as well, Uh, in terms of not only just facing the opposition, uh, the official opposition of Capital O, but some opposition on its own uh, benches, but at times, of course, conflict with the junior party to the coalition as well. So opposition can take different forms. So it's important, I think, for intellectual clarity clarity, to be aware of that and where it is coming uh, 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 from. So the challenge to government, can take different forms because, of course, the chat from the opposition, which is in a minority, is by voice, because there'll be vote, but it's not necessarily going to carry it. The real threat to government then is from its own side, if there's opposition from within its own ranks, combining with the opposition, with the or the opposition, small or opposition parties. So that's my starting point, just to clarify different forms of opposition. Now, if we look at it in the context of the United Kingdom, um, Anthony King has characterized different forms of executive legislations. And his argument is that for the, in the case of the United Kingdom is distinct from some other uh, European systems, uh, consent, what I shall term, consensus systems of government. What characterizes the United Kingdom, characterizes uh, Parliament in the United Kingdom is the opposition mode, of executive and legislative relations. So you have government versus opposition of the capital O. Oh, that is the dominant uh, mode. And as he argues that the aim of each party is not accommodation, which is what you tend to find in, in consensus systems, but rather domination. So the parties are fighting it out for the oil or nothing spots of general election victory, to form single party, ideally single party government, with the other in opposition, but forming the alternative government, planning to be winning the next election so it can form single party uh, government. So let me look at it then in that context of the Westminster uh, system. And by that I am talking about a system of government and not particularly, not exclusively, parliament in the United Kingdom. So I'm not talking about Westminster as a single entity, I'm talking about a particular system of government. Now, what constitutes the Westminster system is contested. So some of you may have seen the recent dispute through the columns of uh, the journal Government and Opposition as to whether the concept of the Westminster model remains fit for purpose. So Russell and Serban have been arguing, it, it's no longer uh, appropriate. They've done a study of a whole uh, large number of texts, looking at how the system is defined or the Westminster model is defined, finding a lot of people haven't even bother with a definition or it's partial, or they come up with definitions which are actually conflicting. And their view is that perhaps the concept of the Westminster model should be discarded. Matt Flinders and others have responded, arguing that um, they're setting up too much of an ideal type rather than looking at a a particular family of legislatures, the Westminster family, with significant uh, resemblances, and that that retains a utility. Uh, Now, I take that line because I think the Westminster system is salient, it does identify a particular type of a system, a parliamentary system. So not necessarily a model, it's not an idealized type, it's not an identicate that you must fit in order to be a Westminster system, but it is more family uh, of legislatures. so like you've got family resemblances, you're part of that family, you recognize you're a member of that uh, uh, family. And core to understanding the Westminster system is opposition so at the heart of it that government versus opposition that's what i really want to tease out by looking at the what forms the westminster system so for my purposes a lot of the definitions uh, miss uh, the point the problem with westminster system it's people trying to actually delineate its defining characteristics so for me there are essentially six characteristics that come together to make the Westminster system. And I say at the heart of it is that concept of uh, opposition. So the first uh, defining characteristic of the Westminster system is that it is executive executive-centric. So Parliament in this country came into being in order to respond to the demands of the Crown. And that continues to define Parliament. So the Crown comes forward with its demands for supply and for legislation, obviously now through uh, Ministers of the Crown, but it, it's the government's in the driving seat, Parliament responds. Now, Parliament's power, the capacity to prevent something happening, derives from its capacity to say no to government. That gives its leverage and its capacity to fulfil other functions. But the key point at first is that it's an executive-centric system. Parliament response. And the second point is the nature of what goes on within it is rules-based conflict. So it is basically adversarial. It is government versus opposition, particularly opposition with a capital O, and the the rules are based on that, if you read Erskine May, um, typically has difficulty dealing with anything other than government versus opposition with a capital O. How do you accommodate third parties in terms of procedures and so on? So um, it's rules based. So the parties accept the rules of the game. So it's an official opposition. It's recognised, it's designated. This is characteristic of the Westminster system. It's not just Westminster here. So if you look at opposition in other Westminster systems, you have the opposition officially recognised either by legislation or by standing order. By convention, and typically there is a leader of the opposition publicly recognized, quite often publicly funded, along with some other positions that go with the opposition. So it is structured opposition, it is recognized as part of the system as legitimate. So, Her Majesty's government versus Her Majesty's loyal opposition that concept is there, it's at the heart of uh, the Westminster system and we'll be hearing later on about the institutionalisation of opposition but it's at the heart of the uh system uh, and there is between government and opposition what i've termed an equilibrium of legitimacy each accepts the other is entitled to fulfill the role that it does the government is entitled to get its business discussed the opposition is entitled to be heard so i think that's absolutely um Key as a recognition of that, so the government knows it's not only got the votes; so it may win the vote, it may not necessarily win the argument. Um, so the opposition has that oxygen of making its case, of pitting against the government, doing it on a consistent, structured basis. So you have the government, you have a shadow government. So that consistency of opposition, absolutely key. But then it fits in with the other defining characteristics of the Westminster system. So the next characteristic is the enforcement of those rules by a neutral presiding officer. Now, the extent of that neutrality may differ within Westminster systems, but there is, if you like, a referee between the parties as they fulfil their respective roles. So it's that neutrality that stands apart. to maintain that adversarial relationship working within the rules that I've adumbrated. Um, And then the other characteristic is to do with uh, the chamber. Now, some definitions of the Westminster system stipulate a bicameral system. Some stipulate a unicameral system. As far as I'm concerned, they both completely miss the point. The point is that there is a dominant chamber. So it could be a sole chamber or it could be one chamber within a system of asymmetrical bicameralism, but essentially, there is one chamber through which government's elected dominates, and you get this adversarial clash between government and opposition, so a dominant chamber um, but then that fits into the next point because it 's not just that it's dominant it 's that it's a chamber because another feature of the Westminster system is plenary debate, the emphasis on the chamber, of that public clash between government and opposition. So Westminster is not well attuned to specialization through committees. I mean, they have developed, but compared with consensus systems, we're not really geared to uh, specialization through committee. So if you take the uh, the German parliament, of course, it is characterized as a working parliament, because the emphasis on committee negotiating through committee, members are not well geared to the plenary. So attempts to give greater emphasis to the chamber haven't really borne much fruit. So the German parliament's are debating, uh, uh, sorry, uh, is a working parliament so it works through committees. Westminster is a debating parliament. It's much more geared to that debate between the parties in plenary session. So, Uh, In my experience, there's a significant cultural difference between Westminster and consensus systems. So, members in consensus systems are very much geared to committee deliberation. They're not very good at debate. Um, And then that leads on to another point, my other final point then is you've got not just plenary debate, but public debate. So, And that extends to uh, committees as well when you have them. So think about it: emphasis on committees in consensus systems, and, and that that deliberation in committee tends to be private deliberation. They're not geared; they're not well geared to being open to the public. So committees are the sites of negotiations of doing deals. So you want to keep them closed. Now, in a Westminster context where you have committees, particularly legislative committees, they're not the sites of negotiation of doing deals. They're essentially an extension of the chamber in terms of the debate between the parties. So legislative committees are essentially adversarial. So they're not consensual as they tend to be uh, in other systems. So um, consensus systems very much geared to committees and those committees meeting in private. Westminster very much geared to the chamber and public debate. And so uh, as I say, there's quite a significant cultural difference there um, between uh, the systems. Um, some years ago, I was leading a, a debate uh, in the committee of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. Um, and it was getting a bit, I thought it was getting a bit dull, so I thought I'd liven things up. And, and started arguing well, look, uh, electors have a right to know what. A, what their representatives are doing on their behalf. Therefore, committees should be open so electors know what uh, representatives are doing. And certain West European um, legislators um, look absolutely horrified. No, no, we can't possibly be open to public. You know, we see them getting redder and redder, so i not just winding them up. Whereas of course the Westminster ones, yeah, absolutely fine. We, we, um, we're quite happy to. Uh, Meeting public parks with no deals to do and things like that, so very much a cultural uh, difference and, and then in conferences between members drawn from consensus parliaments and western parliaments, you can see a cultural difference of the Westminster members being quite geared to you know, standing up debate, you know come on, take me on I'm ready to debate and those in consensus parliaments are sort of well, well then let's let's go away and talk about it and what to really arguing in that way in public. So something very particular about the way the Westminster system operates. So all these things come to, together to um, shape the nature of debate, of conflict within the system. So a very sharp distinction between uh, Westminster system and consensus systems. So I say you can identify a family of legislatures, of Westminster uh, legislatures, um, some of the characteristics may not be as strong in some of the others, but there is a recognition. So they come together through the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, the race publications as well, where they essentially speak a Westminster language. They understand the terminology, they know what they're um, talking about. Uh, so a recent edition of The Table, the publication of Clarks at The Table, looked at you know, the nature of oppositions, identifying core features, some of which I uh, touch upon today. So there is um, very much, I think, a Westminster uh, system that's quite uh, significant, um, the number of Westminster parliaments not necessarily diminishing, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the Scottish Parliament was set out, was designed not to be Westminster, and has ended up being a Westminster-type uh, uh, parliament. So those are the key characteristics I really wanted to draw out to help make sense of opposition as opposition, but also just contextualising the Westminster context to contrast it with other uh, systems. Now, you can argue that within the Westminster context, opposition, as a form of opposition, is the least effective in affecting outcomes. But its value is what it does to government in keeping governments on its toes of constantly challenging government, government knowing it is going to face the opposition. And I think that is the key point. But for reasons of time, I better end it Um, there. I've got an an article about to come out um, uh, in the Journal of International Comparative Law looking at the characteristics of the Westminster model to try to make sense of it. And in that article, um, I really ask two questions about the Westminster system. Does it exist? Does it work? So this morning, what I focused on is, um, yes, it exists, whether or not it works, um, await the article. Thank Thank you very much.
0: Philip Norton there, providing a teaser for his journal article, um, like the pro that he is. Um, And if you are interested in that article, it's called, Is the Westminster System of Government Alive and Well? by Philip Norton. And it appears in the Journal of International and Comparative Law. That's the Journal of International and Comparative Law is the Westminster system of government alive and well? And you can find out the answer to the question there. So uh, we then moved on at the conference to a panel discussion. Um, We were joined again by Jan Royal, um, who was still with us, and uh, had a discussion between her and Philip about the role of the House of Lords, particularly in opposition. And this referred back to Uh, Ten years ago, this was settling a a, a bit of an old score, because ten years ago, when Jan was leader of the opposition in the House of Lords, uh, she gave a speech at the Centre um, on the role of the House of Lords and um, ticked us off a little bit um, about the fact that we had published a book about uh, opposition, um, called How to Be an Opposition, in which we didn't mention the House of Lords at all. It wasn't within the scope of uh, of the book, and she, she mentioned very politely at the beginning that, um, that we hadn't um, focused on the House of Lords and I think it is uh, true that often when we talk about Parliament uh, a lot of the focus does, um, does go on to the House of Commons rather than the Lords. So we took the opportunity of having two peers with us, two members of the House of Lords, to have that discussion. So to begin with, and referring back to that earlier speech, I abused my privileges as chair of the conference to um, begin by asking Jan a question. Um, Jan as I say 10 years ago you gave a speech to the centre um, talking about um, opposition from the Lords and actually noting the fact that when uh, we published our book on it we didn't cover that that topic Um, when you've got a a government with particularly now quite a large majority but also in the coalition years when you were speaking then with a large majority um, how effective is opposition from the Lords and and how important is it that it's it's done? I think
1: very effective because it is the the only place, when you've got a, um, a majority in the House of Commons, it is the only place where you can really affect change to a piece of legislation is in the House of Lords. And it's the place where you really can not just scrutinise, because we do scrutiny so much better than the House of Commons, because we've got more time in which to do it, but you really can revise legislation, and I don't think that that is possible in the House of Commons, because because of the system because of the majority and in the house of lords even if you have got you know a government majority against you which in the time of the coalition i mean when we sorry i digress a bit when we went into opposition or when we were thinking that we might be in opposition the thought was that you'd have you know a conservative opposition and the numbers wouldn't be so great that from the opposition benches, you couldn't build a consensus in order to defeat the government. However, as there was um, a coalition in government, there were massive numbers against, against the Labour opposition, but still we managed on some issues to affect change, because you can have serious debates, you can you can reach a consensus with the um, crossbench peers, and sometimes you can bring on perhaps some backbench conservatives who might agree with whatever point that you are arguing, and so it is possible to affect change. Yes, opposition in the House of Lords is fundamentally important. Uh, yes, yeah, so I
2: was going to reinforce that because it, it sort of ties in with what I was saying about you have a dominant chamber, and so that's where the uh, the adversarial relationship, it's government versus opposition. It's debating the great issues of the day. The Lords accept it. It's the elected chamber, it's got primacy. So the Commons are entitled to determine the ends of legislation. I argue that the Lords focus on the means. So it's looking at the detail and the Lords makes more of a difference to the details than the Commons. So that's what the Lords gets on with and it. Because of the composition, both the political composition, because no one party has no an overall majority, but then the individual composition, so members appointed because they know uh, their subject. Then you can have really informed debates because ministers have to take the House seriously to get um, the, what they want. They will listen, they will engage. Um, and you have a real discourse because I often characterize the House as a discourse of civic society and mm-hmm. um, the different bodies that are there that are heard. Um, and so ministers will engage, and, but you're engaging on the detail, um, and, and so government will uh, listen, won't always accept, but to facilitate the passage of a bill, recognizing at the end of the day it's probably actually inter- it improved the bill.
1: Yeah, because the revision that is made, sometimes legislation is badly drafted, that often happens no matter what governments in power, and so I think the laws does a really good job in improving legislation in that way, but also because we've got crossbenchers, so I think there's about 185 crossbenchers, many of whom truly are experts And actually, it's sensible, isn't it, if you're making a piece of legislation that you have the input of experts who really do know the subject so much better than the people who have developed, drafted the the policy, the legislation.
0: Jan Royal uh, and Philip Norton uh, discussing the role of the House of Lords uh, in our Q&A session um, after Philip's keynote speech there. And uh, it was a really good discussion. I was uh, delighted that we had um, two such excellent speakers are uh, taking part in that and uh, I'm sorry we can't bring you all of the, the question and answer session uh, we had some great questions from the from the floor, um, but the sound quality sort of varied a little bit with some of those um, questions, um, and also we don't want to give it all away on the podcast. We want to give you an incentive to uh, book to come along to next year's conference, and on that subject, that was a very good link, wasn't it? Uh, on that subject, if you do want to get involved and uh, offer a paper for next year's conference, you can uh, do so. Um, The call for papers isn't officially out, but we're always uh, happy to hear from you. If you want to email uh, at research at oppositionstudies.org, you can um, suggest uh, conference papers or um, uh, panels that you might want to uh, put forward for that conference. It'll be taking place around the same time, um, summer of next year in 2023, and uh, do drop us a line if you're interested in in taking part um, in that. As regards um, the conference we've just had, uh, we will be bringing you some more uh, extracts from it from some of the other keynote addresses in the next episode of the podcast. Um, And then when we get into uh, the new political season uh, from September onwards, uh, we're expecting a new prime minister and uh, the conference season will soon be upon us. um, And so there'll be a lot happening in politics. And what I would like to do Uh, I'm always very nervous about making promises given uh, the fact that uh, we've had long uh, gaps between the release of these podcasts. But what I would like to do is to um, get a bit more involved in the uh, day-to-day politics of um, what's been going on um, in Westminster and beyond uh, as it happens and having some more topical uh, interviews and and features as we uh, sort of get into the new political season. So I'm not, not going to make any promises. I'm going to say that that's what I'd like to do. And uh, if you'd like to suggest uh, any um, features or uh, interviewees that we should uh, aim to have, then again, uh, get in touch with us um, by email or um, on social media. So I will stop there. Um, otherwise, I will go on for a very long time. But thanks again. My uh, sincere thanks to Jan Royal and Philip Norton for taking part in the conference and for their support uh, over many years for the Centre for Opposition Studies. I hope you've enjoyed hearing uh, those extracts from it and that you will be encouraged to uh, take part or to attend next year when it takes place. Uh, Do tune in for the next episode when um, we will be having uh, another extract from the conference, another keynote speaker, uh, another veteran of this podcast, Um, and uh, I will see you then. But in the meantime, look after yourselves. Um, what is it I say at the end of the podcast? I've forgotten, it's been so long. Um, (laughs) Until then, thanks for listening, look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. It's presented by me, Nigel Fletcher, and the theme music is by Tom Hector. You can find us online at oppositionstudies.net.